This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, August 7th, 2008. I'm Caleb Brown. Education of children in America hasn't been a true market for a very long time. It's long been dominated by state and local governments. But what might that market look like? Andrew Colson, director of the Cato Institute's Center for Educational Freedom, gathered some evidence from around the world. It's really very striking if you look for places where education is organized as a real marketplace, where parents pay directly some significant portion of the cost, maybe not all, but some significant portion of the cost of their own kids' education, and the schools are free to teach whatever they want, whenever they want, they're totally chosen by parents, not assigned by a bureaucrat. Those kinds of market-like education systems outperform state-run monopoly systems like we're used to in the United States by a margin of 17 to 1. Uh, of all the findings I was able to look at of this kind of comparison, markets versus monopolies in education, I found 35 findings favoring markets in various outcomes like academic achievement, efficiency, parental satisfaction. So that was 35 positive findings for markets, only two that were statistically insignificant, and uh, sorry, only one that was statistically insignificant, and only two that favored uh, monopoly provision. So that's a ratio of 17 to 1 in favor of market provision of education. Now, most kids in the United States, of course, are educated through the, the public school system, but even in private schools, those schools are often heavily subsidized by uh, churches or other groups. Well, it's interesting, actually. I did a study in Arizona a couple of years ago where I looked at the amount of subsidy coming from uh, sources other than tuition. And on average, it made up only 20% of total revenue. So really what you're seeing is there's some alumni donation. In the case of religious schools, there's uh, some parish contribution. But most private schools receive the overwhelming majority of their funding directly from parents, and this makes a big difference. And actually, what's really interesting in the international research is that while it shows that it's important for parents to be picking up some of the cost, there's a diminishing return. So if you go from paying nothing towards your kid's education to paying just 15%, say, there is a big increase in efficiency in that school. Suddenly, they care if you're happy or not. And they're going to do what they can to be more efficient in giving you the services you want for your children. But if you go from already paying 90% of the cost of your kid's education to paying 100%, you see a very, very modest improvement in school efficiency. Because at that point, they're already interested in satisfying you. And the extra 10% doesn't help that much. But it's going from paying nothing to paying something that makes the biggest difference, according to the research. What about poor countries and poor areas? Uh, well, that's also the interesting thing is that um, because governments tend to step in in education as soon as they can for a variety of reasons, both well-intentioned and ill-intentioned, the places that you see the freest markets in education tend to be poor countries. They tend to be developing countries where the government hasn't yet inserted itself so fully and, and pervasively into the education business. So uh, a friend of mine and, and colleague, James Tooley, has been studying markets and public school systems in poor countries all over the world. And he's been all across Africa and in India. He's working right now in Hyderabad. And what he found wandering into the slums of, of Hyderabad's old city in India when he started this research was that it was filled with private fee-charging schools. And they would charge about $1.80 a month for their services, but actually vastly outperformed academically the government schools in the same neighborhoods, which were spending much, much more per, uh, per pupil.
have people really forgotten that public schools sort of dominating education in the United States, that improvements in lifestyle are often generational, that, that people, it takes sometimes a generation to, to move people up from, from one level to another in terms of their uh, lifestyle and, and overall wealth? Yeah, this is a really dramatic thing that we've come to accept that over time, from one generation to, a ne- to the next, we're going to experience tremendous progress in standard of living and the quality of the goods and services we have access to. And we've come to accept this in every field except education. Uh, in automobiles, for instance, the, the sort of thing that you would have had available to you in 1970 is totally different from what you would have available to you today. And uh, in education, our output has actually been stagnant. Kids today at the end of high school, according to the National Assessment of Education Progress, do not know or cannot do anything more than they could 40 years ago. But we spend now almost two and a half times as much per pupil on their education. So that represents a staggering, catastrophic drop in efficiency. You've gone from spending uh, 5000 essentially to $12,000 uh, per pupil and got nothing more in return. And I decided to give people a context for what this means by looking at what would have happened in the auto industry if you got those same trends. And it's equivalent to being forced today to buy a 1971 Chevy Impala and being compelled to pay $44,000 for that privilege, uh, when in fact, thanks to the auto industry being a part of the free enterprise system with the competition and innovation, you can actually buy a 2008 Chevy Impala for $21,000, less than half as much, and it has satellite navigation and side curtain airbags and better fuel efficiency and, and on and on and on. It's a totally different vehicle. So education is really this tremendously unique field which is set in stone, frozen in time, while progress happens in all the parts of the economy that are organized as competitive markets. But there's another angle to that in terms of uh, lifestyle improvement. There is an assumption, I think, by uh, many Americans that if the government were not paying for schools, individuals, especially the poor, would not be willing to make those types of uh, sacrifices to have their children educated. And what you've said and what James Tooley has written that's not the case. Oh, absolutely not. In fact, there's not even any uh, evidence in the historical record from the United States that people underconsume by any definition education when left to themselves. In the U.S., when compulsory attendance laws were introduced in the last half of the 19th century, it had almost no effect on enrollment. Uh, in fact, enrollment went up and down over the course of the uh, latter half of the 1800s purely as a result of uh, events as they were unfurling. The Civil War created a hidden enrollment. Um, periods when there was more urbanization caused enrollment to go up. It had nothing to do with compulsory attendance laws and, and comparatively little to do with state funding. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, Americans don't want there to be a financial assistance mechanism in place to make sure that all families, including the poorest families, have access to a lot of good quality schooling for their kids. Most Americans want exactly that. Um, But the idea that because we want everyone to have access to good schools, we need to provide them uh, by the state and assign students to them automatically uh, just doesn't follow. There are ways to give everyone access to a competitive marketplace of schools and let parents do the choosing themselves. Andrew Colson is director of the Cato Institute's Center for Educational Freedom. Read more of his work on freeing education from government at cato.org.